Good morning. Before we get started, just a couple of announcements. I want to remind you all about the uh, Fundamental Focus, a little pamphlet we have. If you want to take uh, something, it's uh, very nice to share about God's character of love with people going through the various uh, fundamental beliefs from the orientation of God's character. We have plenty of these. I brought some with me here today, but if you'd like to put some out at your office or let me know, we've got about probably at least 10,000 or 15,000 of these left that we can uh, distribute if you'd like to have some to share. And uh, this Thursday evening, remember HeartWise Ministry. This is uh, Dr. Markham's ministry that our ministry has partnered with to start a television program uh, called um, Heart of Health. It broadcasts every Thursday night at 7 o'clock live. Uh, you can uh, go to the website, heartwiseministry.org, and, they, and, and just put on TV, and they'll show you all the places you can watch it. You can live stream it from the website, too. It's a live call-in program, so if you have friends that are interested in knowing about depression or want to ask questions, they can call in live and ask questions during that, that hour, and we really would appreciate it. Or you guys call in and just you know say, hey, I love your show, bye, or whatever. Okay, let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We humble ourselves before you and ask that you will fill us with your love and, and give us discernment and wisdom to know your, your truth and your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number six in our quarterly First and Second Thessalonians. And the title of the lesson this week is Friends Forever. If someone would read for us the memory verse, First Thessalonians 3.13. First Thessalonians 3.13, please. May he establish you holy and blameless in heart and soul before himself, the Father of us all, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all who belong to him. Did you hear what it said there? And my question for you is, what does it mean to be blameless? May he establish you blameless and holy or holy and blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? Without fault? Not our fault? Innocent? Not guilty? I'm just throwing out some things. Or does it mean to be healed without any remaining residual defects. What do you think? You like the last one, okay. How about what does it mean to be holy? Because he separates these two, blameless and holy, holy and blameless. What does it mean to be holy? Set apart. Set apart, classic, you know, sanctified, holy, kind of used synonymously. Um, Would you think holy would mean being in harmony with God in character? This is out of a book, you may have heard of it, Thoughts from the Mounts of Blessing, which is focusing on the, the, the uh, Matthew chapter 5, um, Mount, uh, Mount of um, Blessings sermon of Jesus. And this is out of the pages uh, 148 uh, to 150. And I want to read a few paragraphs. We're going to go slowly through this about this question of holiness and so forth. It says, notice this first sentence. The great principle of the law, listen to what comes next. The great principles of the law the very nature of God. Now, isn't that interesting? When you think of the law, do you usually think of the nature of God? Well, in our class, we do, because we, we talk about the law as an expression of his character, the law being the law of love, the principle upon which life is built to operate, that the law expresses his, 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 his essence and being, uh, not a list of rules, but a template upon which life is built. So the great principles of the law, the very nature of God, are embodied in the words of Christ on the mount. Whoever builds on them is building upon Christ, the rock of ages. In receiving the words, we receive Christ. Did you ever think about it? Receiving the words, we receive Christ. How is it that we, receiving words, receive Christ? Where do we receive Christ into? 
mind. Our heart and minds. And, 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 and how does something enter our hearts and minds? If somebody's in coma, or is, is anything entering? If they're in coma. Is, is, not, not generally. I mean, some people talk, they sometimes can hear somebody's talking in the background, I get it, but is there really any development going on? Let's put it that way. No. So it enters through awareness. You know, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yes. So by partaking the words, we receive Christ. And only those who thus receive his words are, built, are building upon him. 1 Corinthians 3.11 is quoted. It says, Other foundations can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven which man can be saved. Acts 4.12. Christ, the word. I love this, this string of, of descriptions here. This is Christ, the word, the revelation of God, the manifestation of his character, his law, his love, his life. <laughs> Did you get all that that Christ is revealing? Yeah is the only foundation upon which we can build a character that will endure. We build on Christ by obeying his word. Wait, wait, uh, now we're getting into works, aren't we? Wait, wait, let's see. It is not he who merely enjoys righteousness that is righteous, but he who does righteousness. What does that mean, to do righteousness? Holiness is not rapture, meaning a euphoric emotional experience. Holiness is the result of surrendering all to God. It is doing the will of our Heavenly Father. So holiness is not a state of emotion. Holiness is a state of being and doing. Hmm. When the children of Israel were encamped on the border of the Promised Land, it was not enough for them to have a knowledge of Canaan or to sing the songs of Canaan. This alone would not bring them into possession of the vineyards and olive groves of the goodly land. They could make it... They can make it theirs in truth only by occupation, by complying with the conditions, by exercising living faith in God, by appropriating his promises to themselves while they obeyed his instructions. Are there conditions to salvation? Yes. What what, what are conditions? What are the conditions? To be teachable. To be teachable. You have to choose. Choose what? Choose whether to accept the salvation. God's for us, Satan's against us, so we make the choice. Religion consists in doing the words of Christ, not doing to earn God's favor. Do you hear this? Not doing to earn God's favor, but because all, all undeserving, we have received the gift of his love. love. Oh, you guys are so good. You know, it wasn't the gift of his legal payment on our behalf in heaven. It was the gift of his love. We receive the gift. Where do we receive the gift of his love? To our account in heaven? Where does that gift get received? In our, in our beings. Notice this. I, I'm asking these questions because I want you to get the idea. This is something literal. It's tangible. It's real. It's experiential. It's not, it's not amorphous. It's not theoretical. It's something real. We receive the gift of his love. And, and receiving the gift of his love results in what it says here is doing his words. Why would receiving the gift of his love result in doing his words? Why would that be? Yes. Because when we receive his love, then the natural thing for us to do would be that we would begin to love. And so we're doing his word by loving. And, and not only is loving an emotion, it's an action, right? And God built his universe to operate in harmony with love, right? So when we do his word, we're choosing to live in harmony with the way he built life to operate. 
And it's not just an emotion then, because the Holy Spirit's the spirit of truth and love. It's an intelligent understanding of what love is. Yeah. Um, Christ places the salvation of man not upon profession merely. That you should underscore. Because much of Christianity talks about profession of faith. Okay? Not upon profession merely, but upon faith that is made manifest in works of righteousness. Wow, that sounds like works, doesn't it? We're gonna, I'm gonna, I wanna, want you to get these ideas, we're gonna break them down. Said, doing, not saying merely, is expected of the followers of Christ. It is through action that character is built. Why is it through action that character is built? When you exercise neural circuits, those neural circuits will sprout new connections, and the more you fire those circuits, the more established those circuits become, and the easier it is for them to fire again. It long anything. Think of something like taking music lessons. And you start in the beginning, and you just start practicing. It means you're firing circuits to make your fingers, if it's a piano or a violin or whatever you're playing, and you keep doing it over and over again. Isn't it true? The more you do it, the easier it becomes. What's happening? There's neural circuit changes happening. What happens, though, if you maybe do something destructive, like um, gamble, like uh, take drugs, like eat at McDonald's every day? Okay? I mean, can, can things become a habit where you just, how many, just driving to work, if you're not, th- and, and today you're not going to work, you're going somewhere else, and you find yourself halfway on the road to work before you realize you weren't supposed to make that turn. Have you ever done that? What happened? You've, you've done it so many times, you've ingrained this as an automatic process that you have to purposely override to do something different. Christ places the salvation not upon a profession merely, but upon a manifestation of the works of righteousness, okay? It is through uh, action that character is built. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Not those who, whose hearts are touched by the Spirit, not those who now and then yield to the Spirit, but they that are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Do you notice the difference? What does it mean to be led? Is it more than just a, a, an occasional weekly appointment at, nine, at 10.20 in the morning, on Saturday mornings? Is it more than that, to be led by the Spirit? Yes, it is. Do you desire to become a follower of Christ, yet know not how to begin? Are you in darkness and know not how to find the light? Follow the light that you have. Set your heart to obey what you know of the word of God. His power, his very life dwells in his word. As you receive the word in faith, it will give you power to obey. Wow, really? Wow. Uh, As you give heed to the light, you have greater light will come. You are building on God's word, and your character will be built after the similitude of the character of Christ. Last paragraph. Um, Christ, the true foundation, is a living stone. I included this paragraph because I just want to, you know, in this culture, there's a lot of talk about the, the sanctuary and the heavenly sanctuary, and what the heavenly sanctuary is, and cleansing the sanctuary, and all these types of metaphors. Listen in, in, in that, with that in mind to this last paragraph. The true foundation, Christ, the true foundation, is a living stone. His life is imparted to all who are built upon him. Ye also, as living stones, are built up into a spiritual house. Every m- building fitly framed together, growing into a holy temple, for the Lord. The stones became one with the foundation, for a common life dwells in all. 
Did you hear that? The stones of the temple became one with the foundation. Uh, the living stones become one with the chief cornerstone because a common life dwells in them all. That building no tempest can overthrow. So, thoughts about this, this idea. What does it mean to be holy? To be declared holy? Or to be transformed, to be regenerated, to be healed? I, I bullet-pointed what I thought the high points of this, this quote were. The great principles of the law of love. The great principles of the law is love, which is the very nature of God. First point. Christ is the fulfillment of God's law of love and perfect expression of his character. He who unites with Christ chooses to live in harmony with God's principles and thus builds upon Christ. Holiness is a is not a euphoric experience, but an actual state of being, of choosing, of living in harmony with God's design protocols for life. That's what holiness is. It's a state of being. Our choices, works, are not motivated from fear and security or need for approval, duty, even duty, but from, the love, from love and reason. So example, why does a husband buy flowers for his wife? Now, there's lots of reasons. You can think of the holy reasons, you can think of the unholy reasons. Okay? Because if he doesn't, he's afraid she will be mad. So he buys them to prevent her anger. Could happen. There could be reasons some people do this. Is that a holy? Is that holiness? Is that love? No. no. Because if he doesn't, he's afraid she will reject him. So he does it to earn her affection. Is this love? No. Because um, it is his duty, and he must in order to fulfill his obligations. It's her birthday, and on her birthday, it's my responsibility, so I will go out and get her a present to fulfill my duty. Is that why? Is that love? Or is, does he do these things, flowers, cards, gifts, take her out, because he loves her, and it, it would be difficult for him not to express that love? Yes. Why does he not cheat on her? Because of fear? Or because of both love and reason? Understanding God's design template, he understands that the only way for the relationship to grow is by faithfulness and loyalty. And any type of breach of trust is destructive to him, to his relationship, to his wife. And so it's both a love for her, a love for God, a love for God's methods, and an intelligent understanding of how it all works. Or is it just out of fear of punishment if I don't, I'll get punished. If I do, I'll get punished. Our choices based on our motivations, based on our motivations, change us. You see, you can make a choice to go to church that will change you into more Christ-likeness. Or you can make a choice to go to church that will cause you to result in crucifying Christ on the cross. You see, those people who crucified him were very avid churchgoers. What was the motivation for going to church? Was the motivation to go to church to retain power, to get authority over people, to be admired, to be adored and worshipped yourself? Is that your motivation for going? Then that changes your character too. So it's not just the behavior. It's the behavior based on the motivation. Who do you become? And as we choose to do what we, as we choose to do what we understand is right, we get healthier and our understanding increases. So if you're physically, let's use a physical example, you're physically unhealthy, and you don't know all the details of human physiology, and you don't have the entire textbook of internal medicine memorized, and so there's lots of stuff you don't know about physical good health and how to do it all, 
But you just start doing the stuff you know. Just live and apply what you currently know. For instance, you stop smoking. You stop drinking. You start exercising. You get regular sleep. You drink a lot of water. You get proper amounts of sunshine. You just do the stuff you know regularly. Will there be benefit from that? And if, as, you're, as you get healthier, will your mind get healthier? And as your mind gets healthier, will your awareness of other things you can do down the path of health get better? This is exactly what happens spiritually. Do the things you know. As you do the things you know, you'll get healthier. You'll have more peace. And as you have more peace and you have less fear, fear is a blockade to comprehension and understanding. When you're afraid, you can't think clear. So as you apply what you know and you have more peace, your comprehension expands. You get more enlightenment. You get more truth. It's a natural outgrowth. And in choosing to trust God and choosing to act in love and choosing to surrender to Christ, we unite with him and receive the indwelling of his spirit, which imparts the life of Christ to us. I just thought it was a fantastic thing when it it talks about, may he, um, may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy. That it's, it's not just a declaration as some would have us believe. It's a reality and experience. And I, and I want you to all to have that experience. And so for my paraphrase of this verse, it goes like this. May he solidify your characters in purity and love so that you will be found Christ-like in God's presence when the Lord Jesus comes back with all those in unity with him. Is it possible? Now the next question. All that we went through, is it possible? Is it possible for you to be blameless and holy without defect, restored to godliness when Christ comes? Or is it pie in the sky, a dream, a, 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 a promise to control the masses? Or is it a reality that we can experience? Well, maybe we should ask first, what would it look like? What does this holy, blameless life look like? This perfection of character. Matthew five forty three to 48. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only those brothers, um, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what is the context of perfection according to Christ? Love. It's loving people. It's not about, oh, you know what, did I, did I get my tie down to the proper decimal? Oh, I, I was one cent off. It's not about, did I did my memory verse this week? It's not about, oh, I had, I had uh, two extra servings of cheese this week. I mean, it's not about that. It's about, do you love people more than yourself? This is what it comes down to. That's what perfection is. Holy and blameless. Amen. And I would suggest to you, when you get to that point, it's about then choosing to be in possession and acting in character, even if it means acting in character harmony with Christ, even if it means injury to self. Jesus in the wilderness was tempted to use power to turn bread into stone for his own selfish need. What did he do? He, did, he was tempted to do it selfishly, but he didn't. Um, he was tempted to bow down to Satan in order to save his own life and not go through all the pain. Just shortcut, make it easy, let's just bow down. But he didn't. What about if your home is threatened to be foreclosed upon and refuse, and you refuse to cheat on your taxes or 
or embezzle from your employer in order to get the money to keep your home from being foreclosed upon. You, 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 if there's no other honest way to save it, you suffer rather than trying to save yourself dishonestly. That's holiness, isn't it? Yes. What about you make a mistake at work which could result in your censure? Do you cover it up or do you own up? Cover it up or own up? Own up is holy. Cover up is all about protecting me. Protecting me. Sunday's lesson. Somebody uh, read the second paragraph for us. begins with verse 14. With verse 14, Paul returns to the theme of imitation. The persecution in Thessalonica echoed earlier persecution of the Christians in Judea. Some Jews persecuted Jewish Christians in Judea, while Gentile and Jewish neighbors together persecuted the largely Gentile Christians of Thessalonica. Here Paul shows that the persecution of Christians is tied to a larger pattern. Those who follow Christ are going to face opposition and even persecution. Why does religious persecution happen? What causes people to persecute other people because of their beliefs? Any ideas? Any thoughts? And I, I, there's several, so it's not just one right answer. Yes. The works of the righteous condemn the works of the unrighteous. Okay, so you, the works of the righteous, the works meaning they're 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 out they're going out and putting up billboards condemning people for going to church on certain days. Is that what you mean? No, the, the right things they do uh, convict the people who do wrong that they are doing wrong. And and the right things they do. Which mean manifestations of love, meaning loving your enemies, right? So how about if we stood up and promoted a, a doctrine of forgiving the Taliban and loving the terrorists? In our society, we want to minister to them. We want to send them stuff for their kids, food. We want to, we want to help put a hospital up for, for them. What would happen in our society if we started that? Would we be supported? Or would we come under the Patriot Act and be alleged of you know, colluding with terrorism? Yes. Doesn't the military do that now, though? I mean, aren't we over there N- no. supporting and... To, to, the, to the non-aligned communities, yes. But not to the families of the terrorists themselves, I don't believe. Yeah. So one would be, I think you're exactly right. And I think when we show love in a truly Christ-like manner, who was the ultimate expression of love? And what they do to him? I mean, this is what happens. Um, what about the Chick-fil-A thing this past week? <laughs> you mean when the, the owner of Chick-fil-A suggested or stated that he doesn't support gay marriage? Is that what you're talking about? Well, the thing is, um, so many people responded negatively to that, but I think he's... He can have his own opinion just like anybody. Yeah, so, so, so his opinion, I don't support gay marriage, didn't say he doesn't love gay people. Right. Didn't say that no, at all. Didn't. It said this particular institution, this particular societal policy he doesn't support, had nothing to do with whether he loves gay people or not. Yeah. Is that not true? Yes. But there was a lot of, I heard a lot of hate speech toward him yes. on the radio. Um, and, go- and, and certain government officials in certain cities um, wanting to ban Chick-fil-A's from their districts and, and all this kind of stuff. Look, think of the method, methodology used. We're, you don't support our policy on this as a person. Now, it might be different if he said, we won't serve gay people at Chick-fil-A. 
He never did that. He just his own personal opinion. So I agree with you. There's kind of a reverse discrimination that happens, yes. So in the principle that you're talking about demonstrating love, was it necessary? For him to say that? Yeah. There was a discussion I had with some people after that happened, and, and their opinion was is that it wasn't even necessary because he sells chicken and sells sandwiches, and they felt like it really didn't have anything to do with, you know, I don't his know personal enough of- opinion versus his company selling chicken. I don't know enough about the context of where and whom he said it to. If he was saying it to a Bible class he was teaching, if he was saying it to some students, if he was responding to an interview by somebody who asked him specifically the question, I don't know enough about the context of where it came out to answer that question. Okay. Um, so other reasons for persecution. How about control and power? The Chinese government realizes that religion and religious beliefs have the power to topple governments. Thus, they repress religion and promote atheism with the position that the state supersedes religious beliefs. So, control and power. Papal Protestant conflicts in the Dark Ages, the papal system in history, was not primarily concerned about saving souls, but retaining political power. Thus, it worked to repress the Reformation to prevent removing its funding and power base. England, in the 16th century, put to death many Catholics because of fears that they were undermining the government after a papal bull, uh, which is an edict, that the Catholics in England were uh, were absolved of their loyalty to the Protestant English government. Or how about, so, for power and control. People persecute because of power and control. One reason, yes. We're also in a great controversy. I think the devil himself instigates activities based on nothing more than the war that's going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. And, 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 his, and his greatest achievements are getting people to persecute others in the name of Christ. They're his greatest achievements. Think about what it does to the image, the idea, the concept of God and the concept of Christ for people to take on the name of Christ and then go out and carry out crusades, inquisitions, shoot abortion doctors, um, you know, the, the things that people do. Isn't at the heart of the power control issue of fear? Isn't fear at the, at the base of that? C- certainly, yes. For the most part. Yes, yes. It's, we we want to control so we can uh, avoid our fears and we can have security. We can feel safe. Right. Yes. How about misguided beliefs about God? Is this another reason? So Saul of Tarsus sought to persecute because he believed he was actually doing the right thing. But he was misguided. Yes. I think that's why the Muslims persecute and kill the Christians because their their understanding of God comes from the Old Testament that he is vengeful and if you don't follow and do his will, you deserve to be killed. And so if you're a good Muslim, you're not going to be dissuaded by a good Christian doing you some favors and Winning you through love. I think that's another great example. Islam, if you're a Muslim and you convert to Christianity in some countries, what happens? You get killed. They kill you if you convert. So yes, I think exactly right. Misguided beliefs, I think it's a great example. There are those of other religions, Catholics, Protestants, and others who have thought they were doing God's will by persecuting others. Jesus himself said in John 16, 2 and 3, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time will come when anyone who kills you will think they are offering service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Why do they do it? They think they're doing it to, to, to honor God, but Jesus makes it very clear. If you do that kind of stuff, you don't know God and you don't know Christ. Very clear. 
Puritans in America, also another example, persecuted those who didn't partake and participate in Puritan services. This is out of a book. That's by S.P. Haynes out of a book called Religious Persecution, A Study of Political Psychology. This is uh, considered by many to be kind of the the the, the textbook of, of these types of ideas. And this is what he says right in the early parts of the book. It says, quote, For the priest, above all, toleration is necessarily a hard virtue. One ought not to lay great success upon the old argument of Hallman and Macaulay, uh, the school, as uh, they as to the strength of vested interests, though it has a certain historical importance because the priests must subsist somehow. So what he's saying here is, don't think that the priests and the, and the, and the clergy um, are, are intolerant because they need to maintain the subsistence. Uh, that's a weak argument, is what he's saying. Um, vested interests are, after all, merely secondary. But in the priest, the emotional bias of the ordinary man has tenfold strength. By a natural process, men who cling most to the instinct of veneration of the past and enthusiastic obedience to present authority are drawn to the priesthood. They are often the most lovable and most human of their kind, but their very strength of conviction and inaccessibility to plain reasoning is, in certain matters makes real tolerance for them extremely difficult. Indeed, they have often frankly admitted, especially in these days, that supernatural truths are, be, are bound up with the heart and not the head. So what he's saying is that there's a selection bias in the clergy in which people who tend to have strong convictions, who are emotionally driven and less objectively minded, are overrepresented in the priesthood. Thus, he argues that the clergy is more vulnerable towards persecuting others while thinking they're doing right. Look at the history of religions, regardless of the denomination or the religion. What do you think about his observations? Well, there's two general types of intolerances. One is the intolerance within an organization, inside the organization, where if you don't conform to the ecclesiastical authority of the organization, they censor and expel you from the organization. And then there's civil intolerance, And Haynes would argue, what we just read, would argue that the clergy are intolerant within their organizations more so than other people, and when the government is overly influenced by the clergy, then civil intolerance occurs. Yes? Our denomination seems to have some of this problem. Uh, The review that just came, and I read the article about uniformity when it comes to uh, our unions uh, wanting perhaps to to uh, ordain women and the article said let's keep it the way it is at least until the next general conference because we want to have everybody together yeah well they've been saying let's keep it the way it is for the next general conference for the last five general conferences That's right. <laughs> i mean every general every i mean i, I remember this back when i was in high school over here, they were having this debate, and let's, let's wait till the next general conference. Let's wait till the next general conference. Let's wait till, why don't we wait till the Lord comes? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's really what they're trying to do. It's delay and stall tactics. Uniformity is important to a lot of see, people. But see, it's, it's uniformity is not unity. Amen. Okay? Unity is loving people of diversity. Did you all hear that? 
Okay, we have a unity of heart motive. We have a unity of principle, of action, of other-centeredness. But we give diversity. There's lots and lots of ways to express that. And a man or a woman, one's sexual orientation, um, or, or even sexual orientation for sure, uh, doesn't determine whether you can love people or not. Does it? There are many heterosexual people. There are many men. There are many women. I mean, you can go this whole idea that hate people and are cruel. Are there not? I mean, if you look at the persecutions that have happened, if you want to look at the, um, the, sexual, the sexual issue, both male and female, and then homosexual, heterosexual, if you look at the history of humanity, how many of the, of the persecutions have been led by women through history? Give me one. And how many have been led by homosexuals? Heterosexual men have done the greatest persecution in the history of the world. Testosterone? Testosterone. (laughs) Well, my point is simple. I'm not arguing for or against gayness. I'm suggesting that the issue is one of unity of love, unity of heart, caring for people, letting God convict the individual person on their journey where they're at. Another reason for intolerance has to do with stages of moral development. And a couple of years back, I, I shared Kohlberg's stages of moral development, and I thought today might be a good time to just kind of re- review those very quickly. Kohlberg um, documented that there, that there is a progression in our, in our development. Just like children start as babies and they slowly grow through different stages, in our moral development, there are stages. And the first stage he calls punishment and obedience. Avoidance of physical punishment and, and deference to power. The immediate physical consequence of an action is determined, determines its goodness or its badness. It's good, be, it's bad to touch a stove because I get burned. That's why it's bad. Immediate consequence, punishment and obedience. The atrocities carried out by soldiers during the Holocaust who were simply carrying out their orders under threat of punishment illustrates this adult version of this type of, of, of maturity or immaturity, we should say. Um, stage two is instrumental exchange. This is the marketplace exchange, the quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And um, doing um, an eye for an eye mentality. You punch my eye, I get to punch your eye. It's it's an equal exchange going on. The third level is interpersonal conformity, right? Is is conformity to the behavioral expectations of one's peers. So we want to do everything that the group thinks is right, so we get along with everybody. That's that's uh, everybody's doing it. So if everybody's doing it, you know, then it must be the right thing to do because society's doing it. You can see this level of maturity going on with a lot of the social. Uh, changes going on, including the gay rights movement. That's they're working t- the, to get people on on this level of, of behavior to go along be- and get society to accept it, and then it must be right. Um, stage four. I think you'll recognize stage four: law and order. Law and order. Respect for rules, laws, and properly constituted authority. Defense of a given social and institutional order for its own sake. Justice normally refers to a criminal or forensic justice. Justice demands that the wrongdoer be punished, that he pay his debt to society, and that the law abiders be rewarded a good day's pay for a good day's work. Injustice is failing to reward work or failing to punish um, um, demerits. Um, Authority figures are seldom questioned. He must be right. He's the pope. He must be right. He's the president. He's the boss. He's the chief of police. He's the mayor. He must be right. We don't question that. He's the pastor. We don't question that. He must be right. Now, stage four and a half, stage four and a half, 
is between the, the conventional stages, um, which are the ones I just read, and the more mature stages. And this is the college-age students who have come to see that these black and white rules just really don't work all the time. Uh, they're, they're relative, they're arbitrary, but have not yet discovered the universal ethical principles that life operates upon that they will devolve for a period of time into some hedonistic behaviors uh, and sowing their wild oats, so to speak. Uh, the classic example being the hippie culture of the 60s uh, would be an example of this. This is what our ministry is accused of by the local pastorate. We have been accused by the local pastorate that our ministry will lead people into this type of living. This is how they see it. Okay, and I've been told that, and Russell, you were there at the meeting. Told that directly. All right, so the fifth level is prior rights and social contract, which means moral action in a specific situation is not defined by reference to a checklist of rules, but from logical application of universal abstract moral principles. Individuals have a natural and inalienable rights and liberties and are, um, and are prior to society and must uh, be protected by society. Retributive justice is repudiated in higher level thinking and morality. The statement, justice demands punishment, which is self-evident in stage four, is equally uh, self-evident, self-evident of nonsense in stage five. Retributive uh, punishment is neither rational nor just because it does not promote the rights and welfare of the individual, uh, only enforces legal rules and sanctions, and doesn't protect future vi- victims, is not a deterrent, and doesn't rehabilitate the one who was doing the problem. And then universal ethical principles, number six, stage six. An individual who reaches this stage acts out of universal principles based on the equality and worth of all human beings. Persons are never meant to be an end, but are an end in themselves. The golden rule, uh, a list of, of doing to others as you'd have them do unto, unto you. At this level, God is understood to say what is right because it is right. That's why he says it. His uh, sayings are not right just because he says it, but he says it because it is right. The person at this level, has accepted the invitation to come and reason together. This is what Kohlberg said. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> so, um, now, he had a couple of observations about these levels. Number One observation was stage development is invariant, meaning that everyone has to progress through the stages and you have to go through them in order. You can't just wake up as a kid at level six. You start at level one and you'd progress to level two. Stage development subjects cannot comprehend, get this, cannot comprehend moral reasoning at a stage more than one stage above their own. So stage four people can't comprehend stage six people. Uh, In stage development, movement through the stages is affected when cognitive disequilibrium is created. That's when a person finds that their mode of believing doesn't fit the moral dilemma they find themselves in. It doesn't answer the questions and it causes uh, cognitive dissonance or emotional distress because their their paradigm doesn't work anymore. That is what motivates people to, to look for a different paradigm and advance through the stages. It is quite possible for human beings to be physically mature but not morally mature. Kolber believed that only about 25% of people ever grow to level six, one in four. The majority, the majority, according to him, remain at level four. Now, the Bible gives an example of the, how these the same behaviors can be approached from two different perspectives. The Bible enjoins the principles of modesty, humility, and wise stewardship of money. Application of these principles might 
for the level six person preclude the expense, uh, expensive jewelry first, flashy cars, and so forth. Um, and they would have no problem doing this because they understand the principle of using resources to bless others rather than to promote and grandize self. Persons functioning at level four, however, will make a list of rules about jewelry in the church, red dresses, or cosmetics, but they might not even notice a flashy car or a lady who wears a new dress every single week because those aren't on the list. You see, you see the difference, okay? Level six thinkers would be in a minority, according to Kohlberg. Now, theories on the how this applies to how you see, then, God's plan of salvation, the atonement. Level one thinkers see the atonement as man sinned and offended God. God responded with angry vengeance in taking the life of Jesus. And there are people, and I could show you documents, where they teach that God killed Christ at the cross. A level two, God somehow struck a bargain with the devil, marketplace bargain. You know, this, you, you see this in the um, um, C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia. Thank you, Chronicles of Narnia, where where, where Aslan makes a deal with the uh, uh, the Winter Witch in order to save the the son of Adam. So he makes a marketplace bargain with the devil in order to get the hostages released. Levels three and four, the law must be kept. Man broke the law, someone had to pay the penalty. The wages of sin is death, Jesus paid the penalty, the integrity of the law was maintained. Levels five and six, he demonstrated, Christ demonstrated that separation from God is death. Why have you forsaken me? Uh, Since um, we separate ourselves from him and him not from us, he is not our executioner. He allowed Satan to play out his hand, exposing his selfish character for all both man and angels, to see, and thus erasing all sympathy for the accusations of the fallen foe. God's character was vindicated. Atonement becomes at-one-ment. God did what it took to win our love and trust, destroy the infection of sin, and restore us to unity with himself. Neither God nor his law, defined as the eternal principles upon which life is based, changes, but our understanding of him changes, and God speaks to each of us at a level we can understand. Does that make sense? So why does persecution happen? Another reason is because people at one level feel a moral obligation to enforce the rules upon people at a different level. I don't think it's just men that do that, though. It's not. I mean, you think about Bloody Mary and then the homosexual group. Uh, In history, that was well hidden. I mean, you don't really know. I mean, I think each person has the equal capability, not just men. Men just happen to be in charge for a major portion of history. No, I would agree with you. Thank you for clarifying that. I was never suggesting that by um, being a woman, you are uh, immediately immune to being evil. (laughs) I think we all know that women can be evil. I've I've, I've had encounters with a few. You know the, the gay people that yes. for some pretty ugly things. Yeah, gay people can be can be evil too. My point is though, it's not sexual orientation, nor is it one's gender that determines the character of your heart. It's just you know, yeah, that was all I'm trying to say. But thank you for that's a very important point to clarify. I appreciate that. Seem to come across as just the men, you know. Yes, I th- because society has been dominated by heterosexual men throughout time. Why power and control? Right? Isn't that women have been subordinated, haven't they? Yes. I'm reading an interesting point on the Kohlberg thing. It says, although Kohlberg insisted that stage six uh, exists, he found it difficult to identify uh, individuals that consistently operated at that level. 
Yeah. So I think with him, he's almost theoretical. Yes. And that, and that is, of course, the message of the gospel is that God is working to bring people to level six when the, when his character is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come. When he matures us, when we grow up, when we are so settled into the truth, when we're sealed, so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, that we can't be moved, when we've been regenerated in the inner man, when we have Revelation 12, 11, uh, love other, uh, when, with Revelation 12, 11, these are they who do not seek, um, these are they who do not seek, yeah, who do not love themselves. Thank you. Do not love themselves so much as to shrink from death. I was actually trying to say the interpretation before I said the quote. Um, that they're not, they're not loving self so much that they're trying to save themselves. I mean, it's all the same. Level six, maturity, transformation, healing, is where the Holy Spirit is trying to bring a group of us at once so that we can walk right into heaven and see God face to face. Yes? I guess that must be why, throughout the Bible, there's a progression of things, like eye for eye, you know, or, or yes. the divorce rules or whatever compared yes. to what Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, exactly. What you see is he met them down there at level one. And in, in, in coming out of Egypt, these guys were level one. I mean, that's where they were, level one. And that's why you see the eye for an eye. He's trying to move them up a little bit through the stages. Exactly right, because you can't go faster than you can comprehend. That's exactly well said. Um in the same day's lesson, it asks us to read uh, 1 Thessalonians two fourteen through 16. It says, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which were in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things cho- those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and, and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Um, in this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Uh, the lesson points out that this particular passage is, has been used in history to persecute the Jews. And if you read what it says, he's describing these Jews who crucified Christ, these ones who oppose him, that oppose the gospel, and they've heaped up for themselves the wrath that has come upon them. And so this has been used. And the lesson, though, however, also points out that Paul was not talking about an entire genetic group of people. He was talking about specific individual or class or mindset of people who were opposing the gospel. And so I have the question, and it says, the lesson asks the question, how much ethnic prejudice lingers in our own hearts? How much ethnic prejudice lingers in our own hearts? Do we have problem with people of different ethnic backgrounds? Is it appropriate to judge someone by the color of their skin or their gender? Can there be tensions, though, between two groups of people that are simply a result of taste, preference, experience, and have nothing to do with judgmentalism, prejudice, or bias? For instance, could one group of people not enjoy the music common to another group? Does that mean they're, the one group who doesn't enjoy the music is racist because you don't enjoy the music? No. Could one group of people not enjoy the food, the spices of another group, and if you don't enjoy the food, music, spice, or even clothing, it's just not just what it's just not what you enjoy. Does that mean you're racist? No. Can you love people of all backgrounds while you don't enjoy the necessarily the music, food, clothing, or the culture? Can you do that? Yes. How about if one culture likes to end church at noon and another culture likes to end church at four p.m.? 
If one doesn't like to go to church where they ended at 4 p.m., does that mean you're racist? The issue is, do we love people and how do we treat them? That's the issue. Now, the next question is, are all people equal? (laughs) Wow, you guys. Wow. (laughs) That was a mixed in, and that was the right answer, because it's yes and no. So first question, yes, how are all people equal? Are we all equal in moral worth and value to God? Yes. Yes. Are we all equal in a... Oh, yes. In, in answer to your previous question, yeah. it's a lot easier sometimes to, to appreciate and, and um, love people who are of different races, different backgrounds, if they think like we do. Yeah, no question, isn't it? Yes. We have to get some, we have to, just for the same reason, we're talking about the spiritual persecution, we have to get through our own comfort zone. And many of the things we do, Russell was mentioned this earlier, we do things to make ourselves feel safe because we have insecurities and fears. And so we establish routines, we establish structure, we establish doctrine, we establish beliefs we, we, uh, that we get comfortable with to make ourselves feel safe. In order to genuinely love other people, we have to die to self. It's not about me anymore. It's not about whether I feel safe or not. It's about whether I can bless you. That is not natural to our heart. That is not natural to my heart. That is, that is foreign. It feels uncomfortable. It feels, it feels almost even wrong. But that is the, the place we have to go if we're really going to be lovers of other people, isn't it? In that place we only go when we have the security that comes from that connection with Christ that he's abiding in us, and our security isn't from structure, isn't from a, a set of rules, isn't from the right cultural uh, norms. It's from that relationship with him and, and dwelling in his presence, it seems to me. But yes, I think you're exactly right. Um, so each person is, is equal in moral worth or value as a son of Adam and a son of God. God loved the world that he say, gave his only begotten son. He wants all men and women to be saved. But are all people equal in abilities? No. Do our abilities define our worth or value as human beings? No. Thank you, Russell. No, they do not, in truth, but our culture severely warps people's thinking, and many, many of my patients come with this idea that their value as a human being is based upon how well they perform in this world. We, get, we, we start it very early. We started in Sunday school and Sabbath school. You memorize your thing, you get a gold star. You do all your lessons, you get a gold star. I mean, you get the gold stars, you get the rewards, you get your ribbons, you get to school, you get A's, B's, C's, or D's based on performance. You win the, win the uh, race, you get, a, you get an award day at school. Everybody comes up and gets their awards for their better performance. I mean, it is indoctrinated into us. You are worth more, you are valued more if you perform better. Is that not how, it, how we're indoctrinated? And it's a lie. Your worth or value doesn't change based on your performance. It doesn't. Your worth or value is inherent. If, you, if, you're, if you're not sure about this, if you're driving out of here today and somehow you see a little baby that's alive laying on the side of the road abandoned, what are you going to do? Stop. Why would you stop? Why? Who, thank you, Russell. I'm going to say, who's that baby to you? It's a human being that has inherent worth. Even if the parents abandon it and called it worthless, is the baby worthless? And what has that baby done to earn the worth? It's inherent. Our worth, our value is inherent in who we are as children of God. 
But our culture uh, warps us, and even within the church warps us, that our value is based on our abilities, and it's not. And this can become confused in many cultures. In the military, for instance, um, the military is correct in recognizing the moral equality between men and women. But some people get confused, and because there's moral equality, they get confused over the physical inequalities and believe that women should be on the battlefield combat role when they might have to carry a 250-pound man to an aid station a quarter mile away. Yes, it's not a good choice. And it has nothing to do with moral worth. It has to do with differences in ability. If one recognizes the objective differences in ability, does that mean one is racist, sexist, or prejudiced? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What is the responsibility of Christians in dealing with people of different races, cultures, and backgrounds? What is our responsibility? To love them. To love them. That's it. Um... I'm going to jump down to Wednesday's lesson. We might jump back up to Monday and Tuesday. But Wednesday's lesson, there's a point I wanted to make here. Last paragraph states, um, what was lacking in the Thessalonians' faith, what was lacking in the Thessalonians' faith? The immediate text doesn't say. As we can see later, Paul cons- Paul's concern for their faith was, a more pra- was more practical than theological. Chapters 4 and 5 indicate that they needed to bring their practice in line with their belief. Though they had love and faith and were standing firm in the Lord, it it becomes apparent later in the letter that they still had some important growing to do. Where's the balance between our security in our relationship with the Lord, our salvation, and our growing? Where's that balance? I have many people email me from all over because they're, they're... they're struggling. They've got issues. They've got character development problems. They've, they've got uh, uh, sins they're, they're struggling in their life with, and, they're, and they're, some of them are doubting their, their relation with God. They're doubting their faith. Where's that balance? Well, what does it mean if we realize there is still growing to do in our own character? Does it mean we are not right with the Lord until we finish growing? Does it mean we're lost until we're finished growing? Or does it mean, in fact, that we can only grow inside a relationship with the Lord? If spiritual growth is happening, if maturing of character is occurring, if spiritual wisdom is developing, if insight, love for others is increasing, would not all of that be evidence that one is in a saving relation with the Lord? Because can you generate any of that separate from him? No. So the devil tries to trick us by pointing out, you've got growth to do, and say, oh, you aren't right with the Lord because all these problems you've got. When in reality, if you would look at the context of where you've come, you've been growing, you've been maturing, you've been developing, and the closer you get to Christ, the more defective you're going to perceive yourself to be. But the only the fact that you're actually growing and maturing is proof in itself, if you want to use the word proof, that you're inside a relationship with the Lord, not outside it. Because you can't grow in your own strength, can you? Now, you can do definitely behavior. And we're talking true character transformation here. We're not talking behavioral conformity. Yes, you can do behavioral conformity on your own. But you can't grow your character on your own. Yes? Where does culture enter into this? It bothers me when we t- talk about these things. And, and yet, over in Rwanda... Not that many years ago, our loyal Seventh-day Adventists were killing each other like mad. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, what would that tell you about the nature of the character? Does character or culture translate into the same thing, or are they different? They're, they're completely one different. Override the other? They're not even close. Character is a, an orientation of the deep motives of the heart. Do you love people or do you protect self? This is really the basis. What's your character built upon? A, a need to protect self, to protect your family by injuring others to do so, to hurt others, to kill others, to protect self, kill or be killed? This is the world. Or greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for each other. Not natural. And when I say those words coming out of my mouth, my, part of my gut's going, that's wrong. That's not right. I mean, you feel it too when you think about giving your life for somebody who's coming to kill your family? No, that's not right. It's against our gut reaction, isn't it? That is character transformation when you can actually do that. Do you know, you might have heard the story, I can't remember the missionary's name, apologize, can't remember the name, but he was sent as a Christian missionary to China back during the Boxer Rebellion, which was around the turn of the last century. And he was captured by the boxers, and they tortured him to death by cutting off his fingers and his toes, then his feet and his hands, then his elbows and so forth. And as he was dying in this way, they said, and, and, because, because he was teaching Christianity, he said, do you have anything to say before you die? And he goes, yes, call my son and ask him to come take my place. See, do we have that? There's character transformation there. Stephen being stoned, Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. It is not natural to our hearts. I say this, I understand it cognitively, I'm going to tell you, it's not natural to my gut. That's why we have to humble ourselves and ask for the building on the, on the, on the cornerstone where the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and we become partakers of Christ's nature and character. We can really love others. God is waiting for people to love like this. And I can tell you, when you get to this level, when we, when we get to this level, we, we will have more persecution. We, we, will, we will be treated like Christ was treated. Because the, the world and the church will treat us like the church treated Christ. Because they don't, want, they don't want this. It makes them uncomfortable. As was said earlier, the righteousness condemns those. You know, as Christ said, those who live in darkness don't want to come into the light lest their evil deeds be seen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kingdom of love. We see it. We long for it. But we are far from it. We ask for your spirit to come and take what you have achieved for us. May our hearts be filled with your presence. May we love as you have loved us. It's not natural. There's a fight going on inside, but you've already won the fight for us. Give us the strength. Give us the confidence to know that you're watching out for us. And in the end, it's all going to turn out right. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.